I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and SiriusXM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and SiriusXM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Welcome to the Smirconish Podcast for Independent Minds. Hi, everybody. Be prepared. I am about to ramble, to which all of you should be quoting Led Zeppelin and saying, ramble on. Tomorrow will not be the usual program. I won't open with a monologue and then entertain calls and then have guests for the next two hours. Tomorrow's the day that we've set aside to commemorate the events of 9-11. Uh, As in the past, it's a really special show. It is a really special show with sound clips, with interviews, with reflection, drawn from personal interviews that I've conducted over the span of the last two decades. And I'm talking about interviews. It's, It's so hard always to narrow down what can we play within the span of three hours. But you'll hear voices that include President Obama. And Jose Melendez Perez, who kept out the 20th hijacker, Ben Sliney, who on his first day as the head honcho at the FAA had to ground all aircraft. Aaron Brown, also working his first day for CNN. Amazing. The two of those two individuals literally had day one on the job, September 11. There's Gary Bernson, who was boots on the ground to Tora Bora, tasked with taking bin Laden out there. Two of the SEAL Team 6 members, Mark Owen and Rob O'Neill, the shooter. Jennifer Senior. Uh, why do I always misstate her name? Why does that confuse me? You're trying to make it fancy, and it's literally just a senior. She's a senior. Like a senior in high school. She's a senior in high school. Yeah. Jennifer Senior. Perfect. All right. She conducted, she wrote this amazing essay for The Atlantic recently about one particular family, the family of Bobby McIlvain. And that's going to be the culmination of tomorrow's special. I, I guess I'm letting the cat out of the bag, but I'm really proud of it. I'm grateful to, to TC. I'm grateful to Dan. I'm always grateful to Steven Singer. I'm grateful to all of you who ever bought a 9-11 Never Forget pin. And I really want you to listen tomorrow, preferably live here on POTUS or on the SXM app or on my daily podcast because the total show will be released after its broadcast. It's the final time I'll dedicate the entire show to the events of 9-11, just as I've done for 20 straight years. But here's the thing. In putting tomorrow's show to bed, what occurs to me is that it doesn't enable me to share any of my views, any of my reflection of the milestone. 
because it's an opportunity to to grab all this great audio and retell the story. You know, the story of before September 11, the story of September 11, the story of the events after September 11. And last night it occurred to me that now is my only opportunity to speak about those events and, and also hopefully to entertain some of your telephone calls and allow you to do likewise. The last couple of days, I've consumed a great deal of media and analysis on September 11. I'm highly recommending to all of you something called Turning Point on Netflix. Brian Knappenberger is the director of it. It's divided into five parts, really can be seen in two time frames, before September 11 and after September 11. It's great. So if you're looking to watch something, five hours, five parts, I think I'm three full parts into it. I highly recommend Turning Point. I want to see something called Extra Innings. Extra Innings is from 9-11 to 20 years thereafter. It's about the role of baseball as a distraction during the early days after the towers fell. That's on my radar. It's streaming on HBO Max starting on September 11th. And then something else you're going to hear more about on today's program. Victor Blackwell on CNN has a terrific special that's about to be re-aired. It's called A Front Row to History. Do you remember the kids in the classroom at the Emma Booker's Elementary School, the second graders, to whom President Bush was reading The Pet Goat? Victor Blackwell went back and found a group of those kids, put them together, to get, you know, they were seven at the time. They're 27 now. It's an amazing story. I've also read a lot that's been written, particularly given the withdrawal from Afghanistan, uh, about how American foreign policy has behaved in the last 20 years. And a lot of it is very critical. For example, Garrett Graff, who's been a guest on this program, he's the author of a, of a book called The Only Plane in the Sky, An Oral History of 9-11. Right now for The Atlantic, and I think we, we posted it at Smirconish.com today, a, t- a piece that's titled, and it was leading The Atlantic when I read in early this morning, after 9-11, the U.S. got almost everything wrong. Here's, here's a key graph, no pun intended, from Garrett Graff. He writes, as we approach the 20th anniversary of 9-11 on Saturday, I cannot escape this sad conclusion. See if you agree with this. The United States, as both a government and a nation, got nearly everything about our response wrong on the big issues and the little ones. The global war on terror yielded two crucial triumphs. The core Al-Qaeda group never again attacked the American homeland, and bin Laden, its leader, was hunted down and killed in a stunningly successful secret mission a decade after the attacks. But the U.S. defined its goals far more expansively, and by almost any other measure, the war on terror has weakened the nation, leaving Americans more afraid, less free, more morally compromised, and more alone in the world, a day that initially created an unparalleled sense of unity among Americans has become the backdrop for ever-widening political polarization, to which there's so much that I want to say. Yes, we're more divided than we were preceding September 11. Of course, we were very united that day and shortly thereafter, but the polarization doesn't spring from September 11. 
which is one of the reasons why I take issue with some of what I saw in Spike Lee's special about September 11. That's yet another one that I've been watching. September 11 for me was the seminal day of my life beyond the personal milestones, beyond births and deaths and weddings and divorces and anniversaries in my household. It was, you know, the day. It was my Kennedy assassination. It was my moon landing. It was my Pearl Harbor. And I'll bet that goes for many of you as well. I didn't lose anyone close to me. But I still felt and feel the loss very personally. Many of the neighbors in the county where I was born and raised perished in the Twin Towers. My station in life at the time is that I was newly married. We had four children, three dogs, an active house. I was practicing law, had my hand in talk radio on the side. You've heard me perhaps say this before, and I'll tell you the full story tomorrow. I was in the midst of a trial. When this all was taking place, amazing to me that that September 11 was a Tuesday, that on Wednesday, my trial had begun on Monday, that on Wednesday, every one of the jurors and all the alternates and the tip staff and that everybody showed up for work. Amazing, because there was such concern about government buildings. I mean, I remember the aftermath. Well, I remember how we all felt. It was a time when, you know, any suburban soccer mom would have strangled bin Laden if given the chance. And me, too. The loss was so great, so incalculable, the emotions so raw. And to this day, I can certainly defend all of our intentions to avenge by killing, to avenge the deaths of the 3,000 innocents, our neighbors, by killing those who were responsible. And as I think about what's gone on in the last 20 years, I think that the challenge was to work smart and not just hard. And instead, we worked hard and not always smart. I mean, I I empathized so much then and now with the families of those we lost, because in my particular case, and I don't know if this goes for the rest of the country, maybe it's a northeastern thing, but, but so many of these, these buildings and the terrain and Shanksville being from Pennsylvania, I mean, I could... I had a a one degree of separation, I felt, with everybody. You know, the Twin Towers, windows on the world. The story of Bobby McIlvain that you're going to hear tomorrow. Bobby McIlvain was 26 years old, a Princeton graduate, just starting a job at Merrill Lynch. He was at Windows on the World for, for several years ongoing. When I was high school, college, law school, our family tradition. Our family of four, and then my brother got married, and so it was a a family of five. Every New Year's Eve, we would eat at Windows on the World at 5 p.m., and then we would make a mad dash out of there and try and flag down a car that we could go to Broadway, watch a show, and it was a very special night. My home county, Bucks County, Pennsylvania, 18 people, more than any other Pennsylvania county. That's why the Garden of Reflection, for which I've been a board member and I'm raising money and I'll be there Saturday night. Um, that's why it was determined to be the Pennsylvania official tribute, not flight, not Shanksville, but the Garden of Reflection, which is why I've, I've raised money for them and donated money. And the victims from Bucks County included Victor Saracini, the captain of United Flight 175, which brings me to my own blinders. 
like I said, I really felt and still feel the loss, despite not losing someone in my own family. It deepened my sense of patriotism. I'd like to think that if I weren't married and with four young kids at the time, I'd like to think I would have played more of a a direct role of some kind. I've written seven books, two of them are on September 11, and all the proceeds, 100% of the proceeds, went to 9-11 charities. Countless columns, more than any other subject in the 1,047 columns I published as a columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer and Daily News, more than, I don't know the precise number that were 9-11 related, but if you told me that it was 50 out of 1,047, I'd say, yeah, that easy, easily, easily. So there are three milestones that stand out in my mind as to where my head was in the aftermath that I think you might find interesting and and perhaps similar to where you were. And one of them was the spring, more specifically March of 2003, when we invaded Iraq. I remember going back and forth, being for and against invading Iraq at the time. In fact, so much so that in one of my books, I'm trying to think of which one it is. I think it's probably uh, Morning Drive. I had an intern create a graph based on listening to my radio tapes of what I was saying at different times. And uh, that graph was going up and down. And what finally sealed the deal for me, in the end, I was supportive of it because of my trust and faith in Colin Powell. Something else that happened at that time, this is all milestone number one that I'm remembering, is that Glenn Beck had come to Philadelphia and was being rolled out in national syndication. I was the morning person on the radio, and Glenn, I think, was doing middays, but followed me, but was reaching a national audience, and 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 really lit a fuse and became successful quickly And in the spring of 2003, right at about the time of the Iraq invasion, he put on a rally and asked me to speak at the rally. And the rally was called the Rally for America. I think he staged them elsewhere. But there were five or 10,000 people in our case that came to Valley Forge Park in suburban Philadelphia. And I've, I've looked recently at photographs of myself at the rally. We'd been on a family trip preceding, uh, pardon me, just after September 11, just after September 11 to Arizona, or as our kids who were young at the time used to say, Arizona. And somewhere in Arizona, I bought a bomber jacket. Yes, TC, I know. There are photographs of me in studio with the bomber jacket. The bomber jacket had pat- has, I still have it, has patches for the NYPD and the NYFD on it. It has images on the back of a flag being raised over the embers of Ground Zero. And TC, I'm sure, will attest to this, but I wore that jacket everywhere for years. And the picture that she's laughing at is a picture in the studio of me with Papa Bush, where I have just introduced... President George Herbert Walker Bush at a 2004 rally for W. I was on board with with the re-election, um, and I'm wearing my bomber jacket. I'm wearing my bomber jacket in the picture. I wish I had the speech that I delivered at the Beck rally. I'll bet I'd be embarrassed about some of the things that I said because, in retrospect, I was totally conflating bin Laden and Saddam Hussein. 
I would say with a lot of egging on by the White House, I blurred that line. Similarly, I guess this goes in a category of regrets that I have. 2004 Republican National Convention stands out in my mind. The mantra at that convention, it wasn't the official slogan, but something I remember. I just had this conversation with Chris Matthews here on POTUS. This was the convention where Zell Miller, the Democrat from the great state of Georgia, conservative Democrat who was supportive of uh, Bush Cheney, he was, th- this was the convention where he got into it with Matthews and challenged him to a duel. Chris just told the story here two weeks ago. Well, what I remember about that convention, and I totally bought into this, and I used to repeat this on the radio, we got to fight him over there so that we don't have to fight him here. A, a complete uh, conflation of who the they are and what the different objectives were Remain of the Taliban versus Al-Qaeda. We didn't know of ISIS at the time. But just further confusion. 2006, a book called Overblown comes out. The author is a political scientist. His name is John Muller, and he is from Ohio State University, the Ohio State University. I remember reading the book, the subtitle, How Politicians and the Terrorism Industry Inflate National Security Threats. And the premise was just that, that our response to September 11 was overblown, that we'd gone security crazy in this country. Buildings that buildings across America that you just used to walk in and push the elevator button. All of a sudden now there's a there's a magnetometer and there's a security guard there. And, but, you know, just totally overdone. I had zero tolerance for that book when it came out. And it kind of haunted me because as time wore on, I would say to myself, damn, that professor from Ohio State, he he kind of was on to something. It, it was not yet five years removed from September 11. I was now increasingly impatient in the hunt for bin Laden. And, ladies and gentlemen, may I give you a name from the past? Because nobody talks about him. And this SOB is still alive. I'm on al-Zwahiri. TC, remind me to tweet about Zawahiri tomorrow. Where the hell is he and why haven't we killed him? Anyway, I'm, I'm growing increasingly impatient. I'm on board with the Bush administration, supported Iraq. I, inter- I, I introduced uh, uh, 41 at a 2004 rally. In that same year, I had, or was it 2000, I emceed a rally where there were 20,000 people in a suburban cornfield for the Bush campaign. But as time's going off the clock, I'm getting more and more concerned that now we've made this left turn into Iraq, literally a left turn into Iraq, and like nobody's talking about bin Laden anymore. So through happenstance, I'm now invited by the Pentagon to participate in something called JCOC. You know, they've got an acronym for everything. Joint Civilian Orientation Conference. I'm one of 45 civilians. It's not a press trip. 45 civilians who are picked by the Pentagon, invited by the defense secretary to travel 15,000 miles in the span of seven days and see the American military fighting the war on terror up front and personal. It was one of the most extraordinary experiences of my life. I board the USS Iwo Jima by copter in the Persian Gulf. 
I fired the best of the Army's weaponry in the Kuwait desert. I'm 10 miles from Iraq when I'm doing that. I drive a Humvee obstacle course designed to teach about IEDs. I board the Air Force's most sophisticated surveillance aircraft in Qatar. In fact, can I tell you now, because it's been it's been 15 or so years, 14 years, uh, 15 years. Uh, I, I've never said this before. I was on an airplane. I was on an airplane in Qatar that was a windowless craft. And when you got on board the plane, there were cubicles and they were listening stations. And they they briefed us and told me at the time not to discuss it, but hell, it's been a long time. This won't surprise anybody that they would have uh, translators who knew the many different dialects of those in Afghanistan. This was all pertaining to to, uh, uh, the war on terror and that they would they could fly this. Here's what they told me. They could fly this airplane and eavesdrop on conversations on the ground. And that they had interpreters who would fill the craft and they'd fly that plane and just try and pick up intel and infra. It, I was blown away by the trip. I came home with the utmost respect for the men and women throughout the ranks of all five branches of the service. However, my concerns about how we had taken our eye off the ball in the hunt for bin Laden were magnified. I was such a burr in the saddle. I was such an ass pain for the Pentagon on that trip because they continually had us briefed by the highest level of CENTCOM, beginning with Donald Rumsfeld before we departed from Andrews at the Pentagon. And every step of the way, I would ask, what about bin Laden? What about bin Laden? What about? It got to the point where, like, three days into the trip, I'm surrounded by my 44 colleagues, and they, we'd have a speaker— and, and then it would come to Q&A and they'd all kind of look to me and like, OK, when's he going to ask about bin Laden? And I just came home convinced nobody's really aggressively looking for him now. It's taken on something totally different. Nation building and regime change in Iraq and Afghanistan. I mentioned Victor Saracini, right, from the same county where I was born and raised, leaves behind widow Ellen, the catalyst for the Garden of Reflection. So Victor was the captain of United Flight 175. I said I felt the loss of my community and as an American very deeply, and I still do. So in the midst of this this military tourism trip, this extraordinary experience, I'm now in Qatar and uh, they show us uh, they show us. Smart bombs and weaponry. We, we get to a particular Air Force base and they just like lay out all the most sophisticated weaponry in the world that we are now using in Iraq. Right. And there's a display of 500 pound joint direct attack munition smart bombs. And there are Sharpies. They're Sharpies. And we are invited by the military to write a message on the bombs if we want to say it go ahead you can say it like is that a little crazy in retrospect but tc it wasn't crazy at the time okay, at the time i'm so like give me the sharpie give me yeah. the sharpie and, and let me put on my bomber jacket so what do you write on a bomb i'm 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 embarrassed but i'm telling you this the photograph is in my instagram account today if you want to see the picture of what i'm talking about 
And I know I signed. I signed in memory of Victor Saracini. With the best of intentions, but that is a bomb that was being dropped in Iraq. Not in Afghanistan. At the time, I was, I was like blinded by this. It was all the same. It was all them. And it was all, we got to fight them over there so we don't have to fight them here. And, and what was gnawing at me at the time, I wasn't smart enough, unfortunately, to, to draw that distinction then, but I was becoming increasingly upset about the fact that we hadn't killed bin Laden. And now here comes the 2008 presidential election, and Barack Obama, the junior senator from the great state of Illinois, is offered to me as a guest. I thought, that takes some balls. He's going to come on my program. I'm all caught up in, in this GOP stuff. But bring him on. Treated him with dignity and respect. We established a rapport. I ended up interviewing him, I don't know, like nine or ten times, including while he was president, once in the Oval Office, first ever. Anyway, this was before any of that. Like the first encounter we have, I ask him, what are you prepared to do about bin Laden? And he tells me I'm prepared to go get him even if we find him in Pakistan. Wait a minute. You're going to invade their sovereign status? Yes, if they have him. I'm like, holy shit. This is unbelievable. So that ends up leading me to vote for him, for which, you know, I'm castigated in the terrestrial uh, talk radio world. I have zero regrets, only wish I'd come to my senses sooner. But the point is, by 2008, I'm, I'm feeling differently. Um, then I guess it's uh, 2011. Yeah, 2011, when we kill bin Laden, this is a mistake because that was an opportunity to get out. I guess what I really want to say is this. I, I want to say that I look back on my own conduct as a broadcaster because I cherish the privilege that comes from being able to reach so many people on different platforms, but particularly on my mainstay, which is radio. And, you know, I'm critical of what's gone on in the last 20 years, like a lot of other people who are right now chirping in about what we should and should not have done. But my criticism is with a giant caveat. I'm critical of, for example, the justification that we were offered, which was false, that they hate us for our freedoms. That's not true. They may hate us for our freedoms, but that's not why they wanted to kill us. They wanted to kill us because of our foreign policy. And, and we ended up legitimizing their criticisms and concerns by going into Iraq. We like played right into what they would most have wanted us to do, which is not to say that the attack was justified. Of course, it wasn't. It was a cowardly, unjustified attack deserving of retribution. But what I'm saying is that staying too long in Afghanistan, that was a mistake. And going into Iraq based on WMD, that was a mistake. But there's a lot more that has drawn criticism that to this day. I'm steadfast in my belief that it was the right thing to do. I'll give you an example. You may not even remember it by this name. Stellar Wind. Operation Stellar Wind was the NSA warrantless wiretap process, that massive gathering of metadata, not the content of your telephone call, but the, do you remember the spider web that was used to often display what it was all about? all geared toward preventing the next 9-11 until Edward Snowden, there's a name you haven't heard in a while, uh, you know, publicized it through WikiLeaks, Glenn Greenwald, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
Yeah, I, I don't look back on that and say that was a dark chapter in American history. Here's another one that you're going to largely disagree with, perhaps, but the harsh interrogation methods. Harsh, enhanced, use whatever you wish to, to describe. You know, the idea that, that the worst of the worst were taken to black sites and then ultimately at, at Gitmo, they could have been tried, should have been tried ultimately in the Southern District of New York. That's a subject I'll be spending some more time on very soon. Um, but no, I, I, I've interviewed Mitchell and the other psychologists who were relied on. I'm, I'm sorry, I don't remember what his name was off the top of my head. But I kind of get it. We were fearful that there could be another 9-11 style attack looming. And after trying everything else, if this is the only methodology that they thought might extract information from people who had had actionable intelligence, then I could defend it then and I can defend it now. I'm going to resist the outright condemnation of America post-September 11. I was caught up in it. We were all, many of us were caught up in it. I don't think you can look back with 20 years. This is what I really want to say. I don't think you can look back with 20 years of clarity and judge what decisions were made then. You can't look through a 2021 lens. You've got to evaluate the events of September 11 and the aftermath through what was known at the time. It's okay to be critical of mistakes. It's certainly okay to be critical of having been misled. But criticism, you know, mitigated by the wisdom of time, I view differently. I get it. A lot of things went wrong. But the intention was right, and it was necessary. Justice needed to be served. Those are my thoughts. The Smirconish Podcast for Independent Minds. Listen to Michael Smirconish live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124 or anytime on the SXM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and Sirius XM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and Sirius XM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus Trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.